All young people, regardless of sexual orientation or identity, deserve a safe and supportive environment in which to achieve their full potential. Harvey Milk. Hi, and welcome or welcome back. If you're not new here, I'm Cassie. And I'm Tiffany. And this is Happy Hour Gets Weird. And we are weird, obviously, in in an awkward sense in our intros. That's nothing new. Get used to it. If you can't handle us at our intro, you probably just can't handle us because that's almost as good as it's going to get around here. <laughs> Thank you so much for joining us for Happy Hour. Yes, and we have a doozy today. Uh, but before we get into what we're going to talk about, I just want to go over the drink and I am drinking a boozy strawberry lemonade. It is delicious. And if you're like me and you don't like bits of food in your cocktails, please double strain. Cassie's very spoiled. Yes. Yes, I am. I'm a princess. Princess and the strained, no, nay, double strained drinks. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, she spoils herself. I spoil her. Either way, it's a win-win for her. Yes. If you like to have a salad in your drink, don't strain it. <laughs> Live dangerously. You know what I mean? Yes. Tiffany is the yin to my yang because I'm a double strain bitch and she is a salad drink bitch. I'm like, and pour that pulp in my cup. <laughs> it works. <laughs> um, speaking of bits, do you know that in the UK, and we do have some listeners from the UK, hello. Oh my God. I'm so sorry. I shouldn't have done that. I'm oh sorry. My, that Cassie, <laughs> why would you do it? <laughs> Anyways, I found out that their orange juice, pulp versus no pulp, it's juicy bits versus no juicy bits. I've heard that before, and I love it. I, I don't remember where I've heard where I heard it. I, it it's coming back to me now, though, and I think that that should be our nickname. I'm Juicy Bits, and I'm no Juicy Bits. Yeah, <laughs> I like That's it. What you get for being double strained. You don't have any juicy bits. I am the basic. <laughs> No juicy bits, bitch. But you know what? We are boring here in the United States. Pulp and no pulp? Why can't we have juicy bits? We don't deserve juicy bits around here, honestly. Yeah, you're right. You're right. Okay, so per usual, our drink pictures and recipe will be on Instagram, social media. If you're interested at all in seeing what this delicious drink looks like or how to make it, go over there and check it out. Happy Hour Gets Weird pod. And... Without further ado. I knew you were going to say it. I mean. You have to. Yeah. It's pretty much trademarked. Yeah, it really is. (laughs) No juicy bitch, predictable bitch. (laughs) All right. So, Bell Bottoms, Baby Alive, and Serial Killers. That's a 70s baby. Serial Killing seemed to reach its highest peak in recorded history during the 1970s. It slowly dwindled by 2000s, thank goodness. But at any given time, it was estimated that around 200 serial killers were operating around the country. In fact, I don't know anyone who doesn't recognize at least one of the following names. Bundy, Dahmer, Gacy, Son of Sam, Zodiac, even the most anti-true crime consumer would recognize those names. That's how active serial killers were. It really is a wild, wild time. 
Mm-hmm. Even locally, the 70s, I believe, was when our local serial killer um, was committing his crimes. Yes. I don't think that I could. I honestly can't even imagine what it would have been like to be around during this time. Fucking terrifying. For sure. I mean, I am humble brag here. I look, I would look fucking phenomenal with feathered hair. Mm-hmm. You would. But chances of me getting killed by a serial killer, very likely. Oh, yeah. So yeah. I don't know. It's a toss up. Well, because we haven't covered an unsolved case in a while, which, you know, we we like covering for, you know, all the reasons the more it's talked about squeaky wheel, Tiffany would say, mm-hmm. um, we're going to talk about an unsolved case and we haven't done a serial case in a long time actually a time very long time yeah I know that we had to pull our I think we pulled our local for sound Mm -hmm. but then we also covered um hilly Mm -hmm. and I think there was another one and we've done um one and done lists that mentioned them too right um because of those reasons we decided to delve into the San Francisco cold case of five men suspected to be killed by the doodler between 1974 and 1975. The killer's namesake sprouted from information that he sketched his victims before he killed them. The handsome artist cruised gay bars in San Francisco looking for an unsuspecting man he found attractive. The doodler would hang back and begin drawing, usually on a bar napkin, maybe a sketch pad. Once he was done, he would show the man the object of his affection, sometimes unaware that he was a subject of the doodler's fucked up piece of art. They'd strike up a conversation and eventually one of them would ask, hey, do you want to get out of here? And we all know what that means, you know. Mm-hmm. And what started as a flattering barroom sketch became a freaky, foreboding doodle freezing the men in time. This case is incredibly sad. Mm -hmm. It's frustrating because, of course, we want it to be solved. Mm -hmm. And there's been some new attention around this case lately. So hopefully, hopefully it will be. Yes, I have hope and faith. um, And... We'll talk about why that is at the close of the episode. But I just wanted to say that if you think about it, this is kind of the perfect way to hook an unsuspecting victim. Mm-hmm. I, yeah. I I can't sit here and say that I wouldn't be flattered if someone walked up to me in a crowded bar and handed me a sketch of myself. Yes, it's extremely flattering. You're totally, right. totally. And it's like... It's romantic and it's super intimate if you think about, you know, mm-hmm. someone looking at you long enough trying to capture your whole essence in a picture. You know, it's it's very tricky and it is the perfect trap. And it also feels safe. Mm-hmm. If somebody brings you a drink or mozzarella sticks, which is what I would want. You might think, what's in this? Did they slip something in here? Oh, you know, but you you wouldn't think, your mind would not go there, obviously, with the drawing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Even gum. Even gum. I, I went to um, 
years ago I was in Tahoe and we went into some club thing I don't know what it was but we were not allowed to bring gum in because somebody was putting something on gum to incapacitate (gasps) people and offering them a piece of gum at the bar which is terrifying um just another terrible fact to throw out there for everybody listening but um but yeah with it with a piece of art you, you it feels safe is my point totally because it's not something that you physically ingest I mean I do I <laughs> I always I, eat my artwork I at least lick you know <laughs> if I see a painting that I like I try to get a, a good lick in <laughs> I've licked that so many is why Tiffany is banned from half of the art galleries in the United States <laughs> if you ever see my picture up at the, the Lou, <laughs> forget about it they will literally shoot her on sight <laughs> Shot on <laughs> so this is an unsolved case therefore it's still an open case with the sfpd so for obvious reasons they've been very tight-lipped about the details so the information that we have that we're going to talk about in this episode it's all alleged it's based on witness statements hearsay newspaper articles, and the very little information, juicy bits that the police have released. So I'm not saying it's not true. I'm just saying it's alleged and nothing has been proven in the court of law. I just wanted to put that out there. And while I'm on the subject, let's go over the sources. Um, I have two main sources that I cannot say enough good things about. The first one is a San Francisco Chronicle article, an eight-part article by uh, Kevin Fagan, who is a journalist at the San Francisco Chronicle. And also, Kevin Fagan took his article to the podcast medium, and he narrates the Doodler podcast, uh, which I've listened to as well. And that is also phenomenal. It's, I believe, an eight- or nine-part series, so... We can really only um, cover so much in, you know, a one episode mm-hmm. podcast about this. So if you are at all interested or not interested, maybe a little bit curious, go check it out. It's fantastic. He delves into the lives of the victims much further than we have due to time constraints. And it's just a really fantastic, fantastic podcast. It is. It's it's fantastic as you said just one more let's just get one more in there it's so good and he does some interviews it's heartbreaking is how Mm -hmm. I would describe it Mm -hmm. okay let's get into it okay as Cassie on happy hour gets weird would say without further ado (laughs) (laughs) um all right so it all began on January 24th 1974 SFPD received an anonymous call. The caller says, Yes, I believe there might be a dead person on the beach across from Ula Street. Ula Street. If you follow the street right down to the water. I was walking along there and I thought I saw somebody lying there, but I didn't want to get too close to him because you never know what could happen. Okay? And the operator says, Do you want to give us your name, sir? And the caller says, No, I don't think that's necessary. I just wanted to let somebody know. Maybe he needs help or something. 
It just felt it was my duty to report it. And the caller hung up. So, uh, could be a good citizen, could be the doodler. Mm-hmm. And there's good reason during this time for the caller to remain anonymous, which we'll kind of get into mm-hmm. more as the episode goes on. Absolutely. The call led detectives to the deceased body of a fully clothed man lying face down in the surf on Ocean Beach in San Francisco, California. The man had been brutally murdered. He was stabbed 17 times in the chest, back, and stomach, with defensive wounds indicating he tried to fight off his attacker. At first, he was known as John Doe No. 7. Eventually, he was identified as 49-year-old Canadian-American Gerald Cavanaugh. Not much is known about Gerald, only that he was possibly gay and originally from Montreal. Records show he worked for a mattress manufacturer in San Francisco, but that's really where the trail ends on Gerald. Detective Dan Cavanaugh, the current detective working the case, has insinuated the killer might have brought two knives and may have premeditated where to bring Gerald because the dunes and the lack of streetlights shielded the men from sight and the sounds of the surf would have drowned out any loud sounds that came from a struggle. So this was number one at the beginning of the Doodler case. The Doodler, the name did not exist at this time, Mm -hmm. uh, and there was really no pattern emerging, so this they seemed like maybe it was just kind of a one-off. But then, five months after Gerald was found, on June 25th, 1974, a second body that seemed to match the Doodler's MO was discovered in Golden Gate Park, just down a narrow pathway near a little lake named Spreckles Lake. Fully dressed, blood in his mouth and nose, five stab wounds in his torso. He was later identified as 27-year-old Joseph Stevens, but he was better known as Jay Stevens, a beautiful drag queen and comedian on the rise in San Francisco. Jay was six foot two, beautiful in and out of drag, and he was often described as kind, quiet, modest, and a brilliant performer. So police suspect, based on the evidence at the crime scene, that Jay was alive and possibly traveled with the killer to the place his body was eventually found as opposed to being moved post-mortem mm-hmm. and just a little side note um kevin fagan on the podcast interviews jay's sister and he was truly the light of her life and it sounds like he was a light of a lot of people's lives he was incredible performer a very very sweet kind person and that I think for me was the saddest episode in that podcast because you could just hear the hurt and the longing in his sister's voice about the loss of her brother and really not receiving any justice yeah that was a devastating episode Mm -hmm. um and Jay really did seem like a rising star. Mm-hmm. I just, it's tragic. 
Just 10 days after the murder of Jay Stevens on July 7, 1974, another body of a man was discovered on Ocean Beach. Face down in the surf, fully clothed like the others, yet this murder seemed to be exceptionally more brutal than that of Gerald Cavanaugh and Jay Stevens. The victim's throat was slashed in three places, in addition to being stabbed over 15 times. Also, unlike the others, he was wearing a gold wedding band and a makeup tube was found in his pocket. With no ID, fingerprints and dental records didn't bring up any matches, he wasn't able to be identified immediately. And based on his clothes, the makeup found in his pocket, and the particular area of Ocean ocean Beach he was found in, um, it was known as what was called kind of a gay cruising site or hookup spot. Mm-hmm. Police made the notation in the report, quote, homosexual propensities. Um, they kind of thought maybe possibly he could be a closeted gay man. And it was by this time, the third victim, that they kind of started to see a pattern emerge. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the F- FSPD released a statement looking for any help from the public. And eventually, the third victim was identified as 31-year-old Klaus Kreisman. He was a German tourist. And he was last seen at the gay club Bo Jangles on Polk Street. And then again, like with Gerald Kavanaugh, after that, the trail goes pretty much cold. Um, they, so the police in the seventies didn't find much after that, but Kevin Fagan did some research as investigative journalists do, and they dug a little bit into, into Klaus's life and they actually ended up speaking to one of his children who lived, who currently lives in Germany. And his daughter said that Klaus was in constant contact with his wife. Um, They spoke and wrote often. And according to his daughter, around the time that, well, just previous to his murder, Klaus had connected with an old military buddy in San Francisco. And for the purposes of to start the American dream with hopes of you know, getting settled, starting roots. And he had every intention that his family would then join him and they would be living in America as Americans. And Klaus was also known to hang in gay bars, but wasn't particularly suspected to be openly gay or closeted by the people in his life. Um, Back in Germany, Klaus did manage a bar that was accepting of gay people. Um, so it wasn't unusual that he would feel comfortable hanging out there. And it, but, but really, it doesn't really matter what Klaus's sexuality was. It's kind of irrelevant. What matters is the doodler assumed he was gay. Mm-hmm. And that's probably why he was targeted. Exactly. Touching back on the um, brutality of this murder versus Mm -hmm. the first two, Mm -hmm. it almost makes me speculate that because I know Jay was a um, physically strong 
person. Mm-hmm. And Gerald had defensive wounds mm-hmm. on his hands, correct? Mm-hmm. So I'm wondering if after the first two attacks, the doodler realized that it was much more difficult to murder these strong men mm-hmm. than he thought it would be. So on the third murder, he went for the man's throat first, mm-hmm. which would incapacitate him and allow the doodler to be more violent in his stabbings after. Yeah. And that's, uh, I think, an excellent point. And it could be that, you know, and that, that you know, speaking of maybe going to in- incapacitate first and then finish with his kind of pattern, his MO of like multiple stabbings. And they say, they always say, you know, stabbings are personal, they're rage kind of killings. There's a lot of anger. And and that brings into question, one, why was a doodler targeting gay men? And Mm -hmm. why was he so fucking mad, so angry? He was, you know, taking a lot of hatred and anger out on these men. Um, And then the police kind of began to, at this point, after the third victim, they started to say, okay, we, we, there's definitely something connected going on here. Um, is this man struggling with his own sexuality? Is he taking his rage out on unsuspecting men just trying to live their fucking life and be themselves? And so SFPD finally, finally assigned two detectives to the official case. And those two detectives were Earl Sanders and Rotea Guilford. They happened to be the only black detectives on the force. And they were known for being fair, respectful, and trustworthy. And Sanders and Guilford could get information from people in marginalized communities. These were communities who usually weren't willing to talk to cops out of fear. Mm-hmm. And it, and also, Sanders and Guilford lived in San Francisco themselves. A lot of detectives at this time lived in the suburbs. But Sanders and Guilford, they were on the streets every day, in and out of uniform, on the job and off the job. So they really had a connection to their community. And I think that also helped with their investigations. And they earned a reputation as uh, being able to solve the unsolvable cases. Yeah, these guys were badass like yeah there should be 10 movies about them <laughs> seriously they seriously. were their story is incredible like yeah yeah and they also weren't afraid to go into spaces gay spaces and gay bars they weren't afraid that they were gonna it didn't i i don't think it skeeved them out like it did you know the other homophobes it, at the time like they weren't afraid that they were gonna somehow be infected or whatever with gayness which is the stupidest thing I've ever heard and I think that they also knew that in order to solve these cases you have to get into the community Mm -hmm. because just like the minority communities that they often would delve into to get more Mm -hmm. information the gay community was also like self-preserving they had to protect Mm -hmm. themselves they had to keep things secret they had this shell that they had to keep up in order to protect that community Mm -hmm. so I think that they knew we have to get in there we have to make connections with these people to get as much information as possible because 
the gay community, like other marginalized communities, weren't outwardly going to law enforcement because they had not received the best treatment for many um, police officers Mm -hmm. at the time. Yeah. And let alone society as a whole. Right. Which you think San Francisco is a safe haven for the gay Mm -hmm. community. And in a lot of ways it was in certain pockets in certain neighborhoods of San Francisco. But the, the danger that these people went through, this community went through during this time cannot be overstated. No, it was incredibly dangerous. And I think that's part of the reason why this really affected me was because the people that were murdered in these brutal ways in these stories went to San Francisco because they just wanted to live their lives. Mm-hmm. They were just trying to find a safe space to live. Mm-hmm. And they were brutally murdered. Yeah, that's uh, absolutely true. And I think Guilford and Sanders didn't look at the community as a marginalized community. They looked at the victims as people, no matter their lifestyle, no matter, with no judgment. They just looked at them as humans and they wanted to do whatever they could to get these murders solved and to bring, get this guy off the streets that was killing men. Like, this is crazy. That's how all detectives should be. It's a case to solve. It shouldn't matter who the victim is. But unfortunately, that's not the world that we live in. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And um, so they went into the gay bars and they asked the questions that not a lot of law enforcement were willing to ask. And it turns out that the rumor mill was working overtime and the community was spooked and everyone was talking about it. So this is about the time that the name The Doodler popped up. And we're not actually really sure where this came from because there wasn't actually any doodles found at the crime scenes. Um, they don't know if someone working the case gave gave the killer the name The Doodler. They don't know if it was Guilford or Sanders or maybe the press at the time, which seems unlikely because the press wasn't really covering these um murders because obviously quote homosexual propensities bullshit um so and also there was a ton of murders going on at that time right this was like we like we opened with the 1970s there was a ton not just in the united states but san francisco itself there was a shit ton of shit going on the zebra murders were going on at the same time there was a bunch of different shit so reporters could basically had their pick of what kind of crime story they felt like covering and unfortunately these cases were not getting the front page yeah exactly um so it could have come from the rumor mill maybe the doodler the name came from the rumor mill someone just just cite some cool bartender that knew all the hot goss came up with the name we we have no idea and no one's claimed it i think it was a bartender for sure 100 percent. i think we're a little bit biased but i feel like maybe It it was it was we're right so <laughs> you got it here first when it comes out that it was a bartender. Yeah. It was. Yes. And the rumor was exactly as I said before, there was a handsome guy going around bars, drawing men on a napkin. He would present it to the victim. And that's, that's, that's it. That was the rumor. 
Um, so on May 12th, 1975, another body was found in the dunes of Ocean Beach. Uh, this man was stabbed 16 times just a block from where Gerald Cavanaugh, the first victim found, was uh, found. That was a weird sentence. Identified as 32-year-old Frederick Kappen, a nurse and former member of the U.S. Navy, he, in fact, earned medals while serving in Vietnam. Mm-hmm. Um, and coincidentally, Fred, as his family called him, was also an amazing, uh, amazing artist. So ironically, he was, you know, murdered by another artist. He was a war hero. He was a straight up war hero. Mm-hmm. He saved multiple people's lives mm-hmm. and then went on to be a nurse and save countless other people as well. It, this was another one that I was really emotional listening to. It, it, it was off. It's this, it's just, it's so fucked up. It's yeah. beyond fucked up. And the visuals that I keep getting when we talk about the dunes and the beach and the darkness, it is a very, yes, it can be beautiful and romantic, but when it goes wrong, it just, it's very foreboding. It's, it's a scary scene in my mind. Yeah, absolutely. Cause you think about like, you know, nightmare fuel, you're, well, like you said, the beach and the ocean can be tranquil and grounding and a connection to nature. It's loud. When the surf mm-hmm. is going, it is loud. You can't hear anything but the surf. And to be hidden in dark dunes with a loud surf, like... You can't run in the dunes and you can't mm-mm. be heard because of the ocean. It's like literal nightmare fuel mm-hmm. where you're running in slow motion and screaming, but nobody can hear you. Yeah. It's very frightening. Yeah. So Fred... When he was found, almost everything about his murder matched the M.O. of the others, except Fred's body had been moved several yards. There were many theories, there are many theories, why this was done. Maybe it was too close to the surf and the doodler didn't want him to be washed away because he wanted the body to be found. Maybe the killer wanted to move him to a spot with more cover from the dunes maybe fred was still alive and was trying to escape before the doodler caught up to him um maybe it didn't go as planned and the doodler had to improvise and i it wasn't stated outright it was insinuated that they they knew this because of the patterns in the sand at the crime scene mm-hmm. indicated there had been lots of movement I think that he clearly wanted the victims found. I think he wanted to re-traumatize mm-hmm. the community every time one of these people was found murdered. Mm-hmm. I think yeah. it was part of his, what he enjoyed about this brutality. Yeah, I think that's a great point because if you, let's just say that he was struggling with his sexuality and he had a lot of self-hatred, which then he took out on openly gay men, maybe closeted gay men. Um, how, what a way to double down on that to not only traumatize your victim, but then traumatize the community mm-hmm. that they ha- found a safe haven in. Mm-hmm. I fucking uh, hate this guy so much. Do, in case he's, it's not obvious. I'm like he's so the worst. Enraged. He is the worst. Oh, God. Lincoln golf course was just is, 
just north of Ocean Beach and the Spreckles Lake. And the fifth and last suspected victim of the doodler was found near the 16th hole, just near a cliff leading to the ocean. This was on June 4th, 1975. A hiker found Harold Gulberg. Although he was found on June 4th, detectives believe he was killed around two weeks prior, about the middle of May, and that was due to um, the forensics of the larvae. Mm -hmm. Um, They aged back about two weeks and decomp and stuff like that. Harold was 66 years old. He was a merchant seaman and a Swedish immigrant living in the U.S. for over 20 years. But again, that's about as much as we know of him. He, and interestingly, he only partially fit the M.O. because he was much older, Mm -hmm. almost double the age of some of the other victims. And the previous victims were found fully clothed, not in a state of undress, and Harold, his pants were unzipped. So he is a suspected victim. He does somewhat match the MO. Um, and it's, you know, it's, it's really sad because at this time, even though, like Tiffany said, San Francisco has you know, today has a large, large active gay community. Um, And in 1975, it was probably had a a bigger community than most. It was still 1974, 1975. They still had laws against uh, dressing out of your gender or cross-dressing. They had sodomy laws. Mm -hmm. And a lot of these men... We don't know much about them because a lot of their life was lived under a shroud of secrecy because they were legally not allowed to be who they were. Mm -hmm. And it's just so fucking frustrating because if there wasn't so much homophobia and bigotry going on, we might have had more information that would have led to the killer being identified and arrested and taken off the streets. And it's just... Exactly. That's like what I was kind of getting at earlier too. It's like the community just kept to itself because they had to. Mm -hmm. Because they weren't getting the protection that they deserved. Not only were they not getting the protection, but there were um, police and members of residents of San Francisco that would seek out gay community members just to harass them torment them and it it, so not only were they not getting protection they were being targeted for hate crimes and harassment so it it was like twofold Mm -hmm. on july 1975 the doodler might have begun to slip up so gossip in the san francisco gay scene could have potentially brought in new leads One rumor was that a closeted, well-known actor of the time was in a gay club in San Francisco, and he went home with a man to hook up, and when they were about to get down and dirty, a knife fell from the mystery man's jacket. Uh, Freaked out, the actor got up and ran out. Um, So Sanders and Guilford spoke to the unknown actor with a promise not to out him. 
And from the details the actor gave him, they suspected that there was a good chance that he had had a run in with a doodler. That's crazy. That's such a high profile person to attack. Mm-hmm. And also yeah. there must have been maybe that's why I know when we had talked about this previously, you mentioned that maybe that's why this actor chose where he stayed, because mm-hmm. you would think that there would have been a doorman or somebody mm-hmm. just for security purposes. Mm-hmm. But yeah. maybe they specifically went an alternate route so nobody would see them taking somebody to their room. Right. There's That's one just crazy. The doodler really did not. It is something that I noticed, though. The doodler really was not afraid to go after somebody who was Mm-mm. physically strong. Mm-mm. He he was fearless in a very creepy way. Mm-hmm. He would attack people just based on his own desires, not based on what would be the easiest target or anything like that. Right. He went for... Um... He just, he went, and that makes me think, and this is just my opinion, that makes me think that maybe these did start out as him acting on his feelings and his urges, following his attraction, Mm -hmm. and he wasn't necessarily, and this is my opinion based on no schooling or authority whatsoever, Mm -hmm. but maybe he truly was a man struggling with his sexuality, and he didn't intend to he didn't set out to harm these men but his inner hatred and self-hatred took over so maybe that's why he just ironically was attracted to strong men and he he wanted to go home with them and have this moment and share this time with them and then just snapped in in the moment and rage took over so I don't know. I think it is super interesting that he didn't pick, like you said, uh, you know, an easier target. Mm-hmm. Um, now, what I find is so honorable is to this day, the actor is still unknown. Mm-hmm. Guilford and Sanders never wrote his name down in the interview paperwork, so it could never get out. And he he never made an official police report, unfortunately, Um but I just find that super honorable that they kept their word. Um, even after passing away, there's no way for his name to be leaked. Yeah. Uh, okay, so then they they kind of got a sense of uh, the details from the actor who was a survivor of the doodler. And a lot of those details they are keeping kind of close to the vest. Is that a saying? I think um, it's, I smell a fish, but I don't, I'm not sure. <laughs> it is now. Um, so they got a little, little bit of details that they're not releasing because only the killer would know those or the attacker would know those. And then another, now I don't know if this was a rumor or they ran into the police report at the end of this and then, then went back and did all the interviewing, but they found out a diplomat a local so a diplomat from another country living Mm -hmm. in san francisco Mm -hmm. actually staying in the same building that the unknown actor was staying in so tiffany might have been onto something maybe that building was shitty security (laughs) yes i was gonna say discreet (laughs) um but 
he was eating at a local late night restaurant after a night out and he saw a man at that restaurant drawing animal figures on a napkin. They struck up a conversation and eventually the diplomat invited him back to his high rise apartment at the Fox Plaza. So that's the building. The actor was also at the Fox Plaza and the diplomat was also at the Fox Plaza. So maybe the doodler has a connection to the Fox Plaza somehow. I'm not sure. Maybe he could. Maybe maybe he does. Maybe he was security there for a short period of time and knows his way around the building or maybe. a cleaning person or a maintenance person and knows his way around the building. Maybe. That's fucking terrifying. I it's hate possible. it. I hate that I just thought of that. <laughs> or maybe yeah. he knows that or or on the flip side, that could just be a place where non out successful people stay because they know that it's discreet, mm-hmm. but still like a nice classy establishment. Right. Maybe it maybe he had been there for other hookups mm-hmm. in the past and he knew. I, I don't know. Maybe it's a coincidence. Who knows? So once at the apartment, the artist locked himself in the bathroom. And after a while, the diplomat checked on his guest who said he was fine so the diplomat went out into the main part of the apartment sat with his back to the bathroom door waiting for this artist to emerge and when he came out of the bathroom the artist pulled out a steak knife and began stabbing the diplomat front and back just a total blitz attack which is seems to be the same mo as a doodler Mm-hmm. Um, the diplomat was stabbed six times before God. the blade broke off. I know. And once the blade broke off, the diplomat. Fuck. I don't. Ugh, God. He somehow got enough strength to grab the attacker and he threw him against the fucking wall. And like talk about adrenaline, right? Just, I mean, we don't know who this diplomat is, but just find the most badass diplomat that's ever come from Europe <laughs> that you can also like stick a magnet to because he has half a knife stuck in him. Seriously. So Jesus. the unarmed doodler or or attacker was freaked out. He had, I, I don't think maybe he had never been kind of challenged like that in such a physical way mm-hmm. uh, but it freaked him out and he no longer had his weapons so he took off he ran he vanished um the diplomat walked himself to a nearby clinic and he stayed there and recovered for weeks god so right off the bat he didn't want to file a police report out of fear of being outed number one ridiculed and possibly having a criminal liability you know, for being gay. But eventually the diplomat did file a report. And to this day, again, the police have protected his identity. Um, so whoever this diplomat was attacked by, investigators then and now believe that he survived the doodler. They believe that he, that this man who attacked him was a doodler based on the MO and also information that they had gotten from the other survivor um, that kind of matched. And this is where we get the sketch, right? Yes. Yes. So current detective Dan Cunningham confirmed 
that the diplomat is in fact still alive and he has spoken with them recently as as in maybe one or two years. Detective Cunningham has alluded that lasting injuries sustained from the attack and possibly fear could be keeping the diplomat from coming forward after all these years. Um, and he also said that it, it has nothing to do with the diplomat's sexuality at this point. So I'm thinking, obviously, that attack was severely traumatizing. Of course. Of and course. he has a lot of fear, probably some PTSD. And um, I, he, he insinuated that's what's stopping him. And it's not his sexuality or concerns about his sexuality. And also, there's only so much he can do. What, is he going to walk the streets of San Francisco hoping to run into him? I mean, he doesn't know anything about him except for what he looked like how many years ago? 40? Yeah, 47. Well, he could potentially make a positive ID. And, well, I'm getting, I'm going to get to that right now. I was just setting you up. I was setting yes, you, you up. I was giving you a easy underhand pitch so you could just hit a home run on this. It was perfect. Right. You yep. lobbed it right over the plate. And I did pshaw. it. Smacked it. <laughs> so, like Tiffany said, not all was lost with the diplomat. He was the first survivor to give the police a detailed description of the doodler. He was described as very late in his teens, so 18, 19, early 20s, a tall, slender black man. And he was reported saying, quote, you gay guys are all the same, among other things. Between the actor and the diplomat, Sanders and Guilford had enough to put together a little doodle of the doodler. <laughs> okay, that's <laughs> full disclosure, not my joke. That was Kevin Fagan's joke. I totally ripped that off from him. But what a joke to rip off. <laughs> I know. Talk about corny. Totally worth it. Some, now when it comes to the sketch, some experts believe a sketch isn't super reliable, um, mm -hmm. especially they've done studies on cross-racial sketches, mm -hmm. specifically white people describing a sketch of other ethnicities. Um, so according to studies, um, white people don't have the language and they don't um, recognize specific like ethnic features. Yeah. Um, so the sketch from cross-racial lines could be a little bit off. Yeah. As, as with any eyewitness, it's not the most reliable, but when it's all you have, it's all you have. Right. Because when we look at somebody's face, we don't pick out yeah um certain like we don't pick out the eyes we don't pick out the nose we don't pick out the ears or the hair we look mm -hmm. at the face as a whole mm -hmm. at least in a short time you know when you're married to someone you look at every part of them and you could describe them but the doodler wasn't all the things you hate they really stand out <laughs> yeah. I, I will say though with the um with the diplomat he did see him in multiple settings mm -hmm. and he was traumatized by this face so i feel like I totally understand that this isn't the best evidence you can have, but I do think that he probably did a pretty decent job in his description. Yeah. Yeah. And I think between the actor and the diplomat, I think possibly there could be 
a pretty reliable sketch because you know there's been plenty of crimes that have been solved by leads brought in by a composite sketch released to the public john list exactly so i think the sketch brought some hope to the doodler case um you know, law enforcement and gay men in the community had a face to kind of look out for. This killer wasn't so anonymous until it was too late. Yeah. I just, I can't, I can't imagine being out in this scene during this time, especially as we were bartenders. Mm -hmm. It's just scary. I feel like you'd be on high alert, always looking out, trying to make sure that your regulars were safe, trying to just, you know. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, it's coming from all sides. Yeah. So after the sketch was released, there was actually quite a bit of leads from from the public. There, and from those leads, a list of sixteen persons of interest was put together. Guilford and Sanders had a heavy hunch that the Dooler killing men on Ocean Beach and the man who attacked the diplomat were one in the same. But this was just a hunch, and they didn't have any proof until they received a tip from an anonymous woman on the tip line who actually gave a name to the man in the sketch. She said she knew him, and she knew he killed the men on Ocean Beach. She even gave the police his license plate number in hopes they would make an arrest. And after 10 days and she felt like there wasn't any movement on the case, she called back upset because she said that they weren't doing enough. This, they, they needed to arrest him. But that's not how cases work. That's not how the law works. That's not how police work. And they needed more. They needed more to make an arrest. All they could do legally was do some police surveillance which they did then another tip came in on the tip line and this was from a psychiatrist's secretary she said the person who had committed these murders was seeing the psychiatrist that she worked for and that was the extent of the tip and then A few days later, another tip came in from the very psychiatrist mentioned in the previous tip. And he said his patient had confessed during sessions that he had murdered the men on Ocean Beach. Could you imagine? Could you imagine (laughs) being that doctor? I mean, I'd be shaking in my boots. Yeah, what, that's, yeah, that's a scary. Well, and for good reason, psychiatrists and therapists have a strict code of ethics that they need to follow. So that could be a very tricky situation for that psychiatrist. Because they, and I only know this from going to therapy myself, my very first session, my therapist said to me, I have to tell you, if you say that you're going to hurt yourself or somebody else, I have to notify the authorities. And also I have to notify your husband. Mm-hmm. Um, I said, fair enough. Pretty good rule. I mean, probably all around, just in general in life. Everyone <laughs> should just have that rule. Right. 
<laughs> on a on a name badge. <laughs> I mean, like, honestly, why why aren't we doing that? So the anonymous lady, the secretary, and the psychiatrist get. I just got fucking goosebumps. They all identified the same exact man. All of them. Now, the secretary and the psychiatrist were obviously linked because they worked in the same office, but the anonymous woman was not linked to the psychiatrist in any way. She was just the best slash worst neighbor. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Yes. So the psychiatrist said that the doodler was his patient and without a doubt, he was the killer. So the only name in the files from Guilford and Sanders that led to the psychiatrist was Dr. Priest at Highland Hospital. And at first you'd think, wow, this is it. It's solved. We got it. Slam dunk. But it really wasn't that simple. And back in 1975, the detectives did bring the man in for questioning. Mm -hmm. He fit the physical description of the sketch He did admit to struggling with his sexuality, but claimed that therapy helped him overcome it. And he was currently dating a woman. I don't understand how that just ended up being a dead end. Like, did they search his apartment? Or did they just not have the right to do anything but question him? It's very frustrating. I think they literally did not have any legal grounds to get a warrant to search his apartment. God, that is just, ugh. The worst. I'd be a terrible cop. I would be like, let's break into his house. Wait, I saw that on a movie. (laughs) I can't remember which movie, but one of the guys (laughs) broke into the other guy's house. That's bad. But that's so frustrating when you know, you know. Well, it's frustrating for people like us that have a podcast that talk about true crime and unsolved cases. But if you think about it as citizens, it's there to protect our rights. Oh, yeah. No, it's good for us. But also bad for us. But also bad for us. It is a double-edged sword. It's bittersweet. It's fucked up. And it's it's Good. safe. It saved some people's bacons that were innocent. Mm-hmm. For sure. Um, so uh, it is highly frustrating that they have three tip calls naming the same man. They interview him. He matches the description. But they he fucking slips right through their fingers. And not for lack of trying. Mm-hmm. It's just like... Ugh. All right, so at this point, the actor and the diplomat who could have positively ID'd this man refused to get involved and make an ID because making a positive ID would lead to testifying, which would lead to outing. And at the time, they just, I think, did not want to be outed. So the case hit a dead end. In 1976, it was was cold. It was dead. And... The murder seemed to stop, leaving Harold Goldberg as the last known victim of the doodler, and at least in San Francisco. Uh, Guilford and Sanders were given new murder cases to solve. The men's lives uh, that were murdered by the doodler were halted in 1975, but that didn't mean that life stopped. Life did what it does, and it kept moving. And cases kept coming and days, you know, ticked by and basically leaving this unsolved case behind boxed up in a police storage locker somewhere, Um, just, you know, waiting for the day 
that it was going to be solved. Uh, so where does this leave us nearly five decades later? Well, Detective, Cumming, <laughs> Detective Cunningham, who is the current detective working on the case, and Kevin Fagan, who is the investigative journalist, think there was one more victim that has a lot of potential to be the doodler's sixth victim. Technically, he would have been the fifth victim chronologically because he was found before Harold. But I don't think the police put it together because it was a little bit different. And I'm talking about Warren Andrews, a Harvard-educated lawyer he was found severely beaten, but alive on April 27th, 1975. And he was found just south of where Harold Goldberg was found near the 16th hole on the golf course, kind of on a, a sloping cliff. Um, his head was severely beaten with a rock and he was also beaten about his body with a large tree branch in what seemed to be a frenzy of rage. Not the usual stabbing MO of the doodler, but Detective Cunningham and Kevin Fagan don't think it's such a stretch that the doodler might have um, changed an MO because where Warren Andrews was found, it was, like I said, it was rather sloped and it was... Um, under some low hanging, I I want to say they're cypress trees. Mm -hmm. They're kind. They look like large. Um, what are those tiny miniature trees? Tiny that... miniature large trees. <laughs> bonsai, bonsai bonsai trees. Okay, okay, <laughs> yes. Um, solve that riddle. What's <laughs> tiny and large and a tree? So they kind of look like bonsai trees. I think they're cypress. I could be totally wrong. If there's an arborist listening, fucking email me and, and tell me I'm wrong, please. Um, so being sloped and kind of uh, looking at the landscape, it looks to me that you kind of have to be hunched down mm -hmm. under the canopy of these trees. Um, so they don't think that it's impossible that the doodler might have lost his footing and maybe dropped his knife or weapon and had to improvise by grabbing anything within reach. Yeah. Um, so Warren Andrews was taken back to Seattle to be near his family. He spent two months in a coma before sadly passing away in 1975. So... Interestingly, the primary person of interest from all those years ago is in fact still alive and he's living in the East Bay, which is near San Francisco. He's been recently interviewed by Detective Cunningham, who was very tight-lipped about the interview. Mm -hmm. But what he did reveal was the person of interest does look like the digitally age-enhanced sketch from 1975 and his younger self looks like the sketch from the original sketch. He still denies having any knowledge or involvement in the doodler, doodler killings, but has come to terms with his sexuality as a gay man. Well, congratulations. Yeah, right. Yeah, good for you. Fuck off. So after being interviewed back in 1976, the primary person of interest traveled for months along the South, 
United States, Midwest, and East Coast. So Detective Cunningham recently sent out a national query to law enforcement agencies through the FBI to see if there were any crimes matching the late 70s doodlers MO. And guess fucking what? There were 15 solid responses. 15. This is so scary. It's scary because it's either this person just did a fucking U.S. tour murdering people. Uh Uh-huh. Or there's just that many more fucked up individuals murdering people. 1970s. Am I right? You you pick. Which scares you more? Yeah. The choose your own adventure of horrible shit. Yeah. Worse or worser. Yeah. Or worstest. Yep. (laughs) hate it so basically after being interviewed this guy was like i gotta get the fuck out of dodge and um this this trip could potentially be the reason the murder stopped in san francisco if this person of interest is in fact the doodler Mm -hmm. now i will note that he cannot be considered a suspect he is only considered a person of interest yeah um now, let's get to Dr. Priest. For me, the most frustrating piece of this whole investigation, because I really thought that would lead to uh, an arrest and conviction. But it turns out that Dr. Priest wasn't Dr. Priest at all. He was most likely Dr. Priest, P-R-E-E-C-E. So he was working at Highland Hospital in the mid to late 70s. Apparently, he did a lot of work with criminality and criminals and a, a lot of that business. Uh, we don't know why his tip never led to arrest. I'm assuming like legalities were holding something, the investigation back in some way. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe he was worried, like I said, about patient confidentiality violations. Uh, we don't know. It's frustrating. And it's even more frustrating because we will never know because Dr. Priest passed away in 2005 taking any answers or information with him. But they did interview the patient. Right, right. He led to an interview which com- not confirmed their hunch, but kind of confirmed their hunch. Yeah. Uh, but it That's kind of vaporized. It yeah. So while most victims were last seen at a gay bar, the places where these victims were found, like I said, were known as gay cruising sites or hookup places. Men would meet on Ocean Beach, Lance End, Golden Gate Park, looking for casual sex, looking for a connection to be intimate. So Detective Cunningham says it's possible that the doodler didn't meet his victims in the bar at all. He actually met them at these cruising places. And he says he, he just wants to stay open to all the possibilities. Which is smart because I feel like sometimes you get your sights focused on a certain area and you miss mm-hmm. things that you wouldn't have missed otherwise. So I like that. This detective seems very motivated. It's 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 great. Yes. And there was DNA found. Now, I don't know. This is one of the things that might exist or be non-existent. Sexual assault, which would most of the time produce some kind of DNA. Mm -hmm. We don't know if there was sexual assault or sexual activity, consensual or non-consensual around or close to the time of the murders between these two men. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't know if there's DNA in that sense. If there is, they're keeping that very close. If there isn't, also keeping that very close. But now 
this brings me back to the potential victim, Warren Andrews. There was a bloody handkerchief found at the scene of the crime. Mm-hmm. So that would potentially have the doodler's DNA if he was, in fact, the one who attacked Warren Andrews. Now, it's been 47 years. How long does fucking DNA last? Well, I'm so glad that you asked. <laughs> so Cassie and I have obviously talked about this before, but DNA solving cold cases is obviously kind of the exciting time that we're in right now. Right. Mm-hmm. And I was just kind of looking around. Apparently, DNA takes a fucking long time to break down completely. Noise. I'm, I am a scientist, so I just want to pre- <laughs> preface with that. Um, obviously, we know that D- DNA does degrade over time. Mm-hmm. But researchers estimate that the half-life of DNA is 521 years, which <gasps> means shit. that under ideal conditions, which I don't know how this math works because I'm reading this from live science because I'm right. actually not a scientist. <laughs> this means that under ideal conditions, DNA would last about 6.8 million years. Shut the fuck up. Which I guess makes sense because I think that's the whole premise of Jurassic Park. Oh, but, yeah, it is. I mean, we should have thought about that. Yeah. But um, also, this article um, from Life Science, as I said, talks about how they used um, DNA from the 1960s to confirm their lead suspect, Albert DeSalvo, in the Boston Strangler murders. Oh, okay. So basically, it's very, very possible for them to solve these crimes as long as the, D- the DNA is has not degraded. I'm sure that they were kept in decent conditions well i mean a mosquito trapped in amber probably not but you know okay i mean in my opinion you always trust a paleontologist that looks like colonel sanders i do (laughs) i don't even think that man was a paleontologist i just think he was like uber rich i think he was the star of the show that's all i know (laughs) okay so here's here's the uh, another it may be possibly even more frustrating part of this. So the handkerchief that was found at Warren Andrews crime scene is potentially lost in evidence somewhere or possibly destroyed after because it was so long ago. Um, and so this is kind of trifold because one, they know of the existence of this probably because of the police report. It's probably mm-hmm. written in the police report. They don't actually have the handkerchief. Two, they thought maybe Warren Andrews was a one-off because it didn't match the MO. And, you know, after Guilford and Sanders, I don't think that there was a dedicated detective that worked on this for any length of time until Detective Cunningham. So that's 47 years that DNA was stored on a bloody handkerchief on a potentially one-off case that was what they thought never going to be solved. So the likelihood of this handkerchief still existing somewhere is probably some. It's a possibility. Could be in a storage evidence locker somewhere, but it it it's looking like it might have been destroyed. 
When it and comes th- to these murders that are so violent and brutal and especially stabbings, mm-hmm. it seems hard to believe that there wouldn't be DNA somewhere if anything from the crimes was kept. If anything from the victims' bodies was kept. I find it hard to believe that there wouldn't be DNA somewhere. So I'm just going to keep being hopeful that maybe yeah. with one more look over all the evidence, maybe some DNA can be pulled from it. Yeah, I'm I'm hopeful too. And we started off this episode saying that we had hope and faith that this was going to be solved sooner than later. And I truly do. I have total hope and faith because these men, these victims wanted and deserved to live their truth and enjoy their lives and they sure the fuck didn't deserve to be brutally murdered for it and like all unsolved cases I hope this one is solved I hope the victims and their families get the answers they deserve and some peace some peace from this being solved and I have faith in Detective Cunningham and and Kevin Fagan. I think Kevin Fagan, as a journalist, is taking this case seriously. I think he's doing the work. He's working with a um, former journalist turned private eye. And the private eye is actually the one who found a lot of these family members, these connections. And Detective Cunningham is like a dog with a bone. I don't think he's going to give up on this. And just the way that he talks about these victims like they were actual human beings that didn't deserve this, I think he's giving them the respect that they deserve. And Mm -hmm. I have faith that this is going to be solved soon. And I can't wait. I can't wait till someone brings the fucking doodler down. Me too. I couldn't have said it better myself. You said everything I was thinking, but way better than I would have said it. (laughs) Um, All right. Well, that is the unsolved case of the doodler. And just to wrap this episode up, the SFPD is offering a $200,000 reward for any information leading to the ID, apprehension, arrest, and conviction of the serial killer known as the doodler. I took that straight off SPD fspd website it used to be a hundred thousand they did a press conference i believe in 2019 it was a hundred thousand they've since doubled it um so we will provide uh the links for the information on how to submit tips in the episode description and of course you may always remain anonymous kevin fagan has a tip line through his podcast website also through the San Francisco Chronicle, and then Detective Cunningham has the SFPD tip line that you could call in. So if you know anything, if you think you maybe know something, please call in a tip. This needs to be solved. This person deserves to pay for what they did to these men. Can I just say one more thing? Of course. You did a great job. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you. This is this is like one of those cases that like sticks with you. Yeah, I I really felt it. Yeah, so thank you so much for listening. Um and we will be back with a one and done episode coming up soon. So be on the lookout for that and again check out our social medias we are we have a tiktok account happy hour gets weird check it out there's some funky stuff over there go see cassie on our tiktok (laughs) it's she's she's doing really fun things over there and there's more recipes and yes, yes thank you so much for listening as always yes and don't forget to love yourself 
lock your doors, and light some incense. Cheers to that. Cheers to that.